Hello, funny people. Thanks for joining me here today on Four Cents a Podcast. We're going to have some fun because I've got something to moan about. Stay tuned. Hello, funny people, and welcome yet again to another episode of the Reader's Corner here on Four Cents, a podcast, and what is, uh, and what will be technically the penultimate episode of the Reader's Corner for this season. I hope all of you have been enjoying uh, this sort of sub-series within the Four Cents, a podcast uh, umbrella. Goodness knows I've been enjoying doing it. Um, having a lot of fun with it, getting to read all this wonderful work to you all and talk about it a little bit. It's been a good joy to my life. It's added a lot of a lot of fun. In this particular episode, the second to last episode of the season, I felt the need to write a major wrong that I was not able to correct in another way, shape, or form uh, before I could uh, before I could close things out. Um, this episode is, in effect, a mea culpa to the author in the spotlight this week. And that author, and I do hope he's listening and listens all the way through this episode, is none other than the wonderful Sam Weller. Like many in my generation, I am a lifelong card-carrying member of the intergalactic, time-traveling, paleontology, mummies, Martians, jack-o'-lanterns, carnivals, and foghorn-coverting Ray Bradbury fan club. That's the first paragraph of Sam Weller's uh, introduction to his authorized biography of Ray Bradbury aptly named the Bradbury Chronicles. Wonderful little play on uh, Bradbury's own book, The Martian Chronicles. I don't expect very many of you listening to this to know who Sam Weller is off the top of your head. Um, But I do hope that by the end of this episode you will come to appreciate him a little bit more. So Sam is probably best known in the public imagination to those of us who do know of him and have read his books as Ray Bradbury's authorized biographer. As a matter of fact, um, he spent the better part of 12 years, the last 12 years of Ray Bradbury's life, roughly the year 2000 all the way to the year 2012 to that June where Ray sadly passed away just a mere eight years ago. Um, learning about this man, doing profiles of this man, writing pieces about this man because Sam was and is a lifelong Bradbury aficionado. He's a big fan. He has read more into Bradbury than I think anybody else alive today, aside from maybe one or two other people, even more so than I think I have, and I consider myself to be fairly well-versed in Ray's work. But Sam took it to a whole other level, because when he was growing up, he, he, he... His connection to Bradbury actually began before he was even born. Another story that he tells in this introduction to his 
uh, authorized biography. And I keep using that phrase because there's a big difference between an authorized biography and an unauthorized biography. An unauthorized biography is basically one that is a piece of biographical nonfiction that is done essentially without the consent and without the help of your subject. Um, and it's frequently uh, usually done by somebody who is writing a book about someone who's still alive and therefore somebody who can you know, correct your mistakes and <laughs> tell you where you get things wrong and fact check you um, versus an authorized biography which is done with the full knowledge and consent of the subject and that's what uh, the Bradbury Chronicles was and but but Sam's again his relationship with Bradbury actually begins to the time before he was born um, there's a wonderful story that he tells again in the introduction about when his mother was pregnant with him, his father got into the habit of reading books aloud to her. Uh, this was at a time, uh, I think, when, when the, the idea was that reading books aloud to children who were still in utero and were still growing, it would help increase their, their in- intellect and you know, Sam is now an associate professor at Columbia College in Chicago, so clearly it got him somewhere. And he's pretty sharp, you know, just, you know, speaking generally. So, um, one of the books that his father apparently read to his mother was the entirety of Ray Bradbury's The Illustrated Man. Strange selection to read to a pregnant woman, but, as Sam himself once said in, um, one of the many lectures he's given about Ray uh, in the succeeding years, uh, you know, several, several decades later, he stood before his crowd, the authorized biographer of Ray Bradbury, so it must have done something. One of the things it did do um, is that it, the fact that Bradbury books were just around and in the house, it meant that Sam had access to his works, and eventually when he was a little bit older, after he'd been born, he found the very copy that his father read uh, of the Illustrated Man to his mother, and the first time he tried to get into it, it didn't quite click, but then later on, when he was a little bit older, going into his adolescence, he picked up the book again, and it clicked, and all of a sudden he was hooked, and from then on, pretty much all of his birthday and Christmas presents consisted of getting Ray Bradbury books, and before he knew it, he basically read Bradbury's entire extant canon up to that point. Um, and like many people who fell in love with Bradbury, myself included, um, he was inspired by Ray's work ethic and productivity and, and his own philosophies about the attitude one must take toward writing to become a writer himself. But unlike uh, schmucks like me, uh, Sam did the practical thing and went into journalism. <laughs> uh, so he and and one of the things that he and he eventually uh, rose after doing freelance work for a while uh, to become, I believe, a staff reporter for the Chicago Tribune. And the year that Ray Bradbury was set to turn 80, uh, this would be the year 2000. He thought that it would be wonderful. Uh, to write a piece about Ray Bradbury, a native of Illinois who had grown up uh, for many years in Waukegan, although eventually he moved out to Los Angeles by way of Tucson with his family, uh, to to do a piece 
about him for his 80th birthday. What better to do than that? And so Sam uh, pitched this idea to his editor, who flew him out to Los Angeles uh, on the company dime, and he proceeded to do a wonderful piece about Ray Bradbury, a wonderful cover piece for the Chicago Tribune. And Bradbury was so overwhelmed. I should point the. I should contextualize this a little bit. At the time, uh, Ray had just suffered quite a bad stroke. He was slightly physically debilitated, didn't lose any of his mental faculties, but he was um, slightly paralyzed. His movement was impaired. You know, when you have a when you have a a brain contusion like that uh, at the age of 80, when you're an octogenarian. Uh, it's it's a lot worse than when you're a little bit younger because you don't have the physical fortitude to work your way back from it. But Ray, to a certain extent, did, and he was able to live on for another 12 years after that. Obviously, but he was fragile. He had lost quite a bit of weight at that point, and he was in a kind of vulnerable emotional state as one is after a severe illness like that. And he took to Sam.、Um, he took to Sam because Ray. He had, ra- he had had four children, all of them daughters. Never had a son, and so Sam, in a way, kind of became a surrogate son. He was that that prodigal son that that、uh, Ray had never had.、Um, not only that, but he was a great admirer, and he loved the fact that Sam, like anybody, you know, if if somebody knows, if you're a writer and somebody knows anything about your work, and they come up to you and they want to talk to you about it, or they they tell you that they love your stuff.、Um, It's one of the greatest highs in the world,、uh, socially speaking. <laughs> you know, it's one of the reasons why we do this because we're egomaniacs in that regard. So Sam goes to Los Angeles to Ray's Cheviot Hills home, and he does this remarkable interview with him for this feature piece for the Chicago Tribune. And at the time, Ray's wife. Uh, Marguerite Maggie, as she was known,、uh, who was a bit reclusive and withdrawn, was very much, at least from many of the descriptions I've read about her, she was the the picture poster child for what an introvert and a loner sounds like. Because she was very intellectual, probably even more so than Ray was. Spoke several languages, knew a great deal about wine, was able to read Proust in the original French that Proust wrote.、Um, His his masterwork of 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 you know of time and forgotten I'm, you know, crap I'm blanking on the title of it but he, she was able to read Proust in his original language that's you know Proust is hard Proust in French even harder anyway Maggie was apparently in the other room when Sam was、uh, talking to Ray and at the end of the interview actually approached him. Giant goblet of Merlot in her hand, and、um, said, "I have sat through all of this for all these years because, of course, Ray was a noted public figure by that point."、Um, and she said to him, "I have never heard an interview quite like that before in my life." And from that point on, Sam sort of became this. Add on to the family, he became another sort of a member of the surrogate family, another adopted into the family, as it were.、Uh, because Ray, of course, you know, loving the fact that this young man knew、uh, his work so well and was so literate in in his canon. 
uh, just wanted to keep spending more and more time with him. And so what Ray advised Sam to do is to write more pieces about him. So that way, you know, Ray would get publicity. You know, Ray would get publicity. You know, the nothing wrong with that when you're a writer and you're of a certain age and of a certain generation and by that time a lot of people had thought that maybe he was already dead um and he was kind of slowly being forgotten while he was still alive uh it it helped to keep his profile in the public imagination and they also got to spend enormous amounts of time together and it was also around that time finally that sam asked the question um Ray, why is there no decent biography of you out there? It's like, well, there were a few reasons. One of them being that, um, you know, biographies are for people who are dead. <laughs> but uh, it, it, it was a legitimate question. So Sam set out to compose at least one decent book uh, about the life and the work of Ray Bradbury. And he ended up composing three arguably. The first was the Bradbury Chronicles. The second was what I think of as its companion book, Listen to the Echoes of the Ray Bradbury Interviews, which is basically a book-length profile on Ray. There's two different versions of it. The first one was done with Melville House, and it's the version that I have sitting on my shelf as a first edition that one of these days I'm going to get Sam to sign. Maybe I'll make my way up to Chicago. We can have a beer and some deep-dish pizza, and he can sign my book then. Um, and the third was... Um, what I think of almost like an epilogue to those first two books, which was the last interview, again done by Melville House. Um, there's another version of Listen to the Echoes that I know Hat and Beard Press has done, and I think of it as the deluxe edition because it's got all these extra photographs and a really gorgeous cover um, that I'm sure Sam is happy that I'm helping him plug, <laughs> giving it a free plug here. Um, and the But the last interview is this very slender volume, part of this ongoing series that Melville House does with famous authors. I know they've done one with Kurt Vonnegut, and I know they did one with James Baldwin. Um, of the last few interviews in print that an author does towards the end of their life, and this indeed was Ray Bradbury's last interview that he did with Sam while he was still alive. Immediately following Ray Bradbury's death, and I'm pretty sure Sam had been working with Mort Castle to do it, he then did the ultimate tribute album to him, the literary equivalent of a tribute album, which was a anthology of original short stories called Shadow Show, in which you have the ultimate all-star lineup of authors, Joe Hill, Neil Gaiman, Margaret Atwood, Dave Eggers, Harlan Ellison, uh, who was still alive at that time. This was 2012. This was six years before Harlan was to pass away. And Harlan and Neil and, and Joe and, and Margaret, they, they were all able to produce these wonderful stories and put them together into this beautiful anthology that I keep telling people they need to get this because it is... It's a wonderful, not only is it a wonderful array of high-class, you know, top-shelf authors, Charlie Yu, I think, is also in it as well, but it's a beautiful memorial to Ray. It came out exactly one month after Ray had passed away. He died in June 2012. This appeared in July 2012. And not only that, I think one of Sam's earliest published pieces of short fiction appeared in that anthology. Because, of course, when you're editing an anthology, you also want to slip, 
you know one of your own stories in there if you can and it's uh, it's a story called the girl in the funeral parlor which he was lucky enough uh, just before Ray passed away, he was lucky enough to be able to show that story to Ray and read it to him aloud. Um, and Ray absolutely adored it. You know, it's a, it, and it's a really good story. I, like I said, you, I'd advise you to get the anthology if you can. But now, we're eight years removed from that. Eight years later, what has Sam been doing with his life since then? Well, what Sam has been doing with his life since then is writing short fiction like a sociopath, <laughs> like a total graphomaniac, in order to produce enough stories to publish his own debut collection of fiction. And that debut collection of fiction appeared two months ago, June 30th, 2020. It was published again by Hat and Beard Press, and it was meant to coincide directly with this year, which happens to be the year marking Ray Bradbury's 100th birthday. And it's a beautiful collection of short stories called Dark Black. Now, I mentioned in the introduction that this episode was supposed to be a mea culpa. The reason why it's a mea culpa is because Sam, just before the COVID-19 pandemic lockdown really hit the United States, Sam uh, got a hold of several advanced reader copies, ARCs, of Dark Black, that were um, just about to go into print. Um, the, you know, the, this was several months in advance, and advance reader copies are always produced in advance and sent out to potential reviewers. Well, Sam got in touch with me because a couple of years ago on Tor.com, Tor.com was nice enough to publish two reviews that I had done of two of the books that I had just mentioned. I had uh, written a review a 13-year-old <laughs> review of the Bradbury Chronicles uh, for Tor.com. It was one of my earliest pieces for them. And then immediately following that, I published a piece with them that was a little review of Listen to the Echoes. And I was hoping, hoping, hoping that they were going to let me publish a review of Dark Black, which sadly they did not take me up on that offer. I tried to convince them, and I wasn't able to get them to agree to it. So this is my attempt at making up for that loss, which is why, I, again, I hope that Sam is listening, because this is my apology to him. <laughs> so I'm sorry that I could not convince anybody in the publishing world to take me up on the idea of reviewing a book called Dark Black. Um, maybe they thought that it was... Um, going to be too shadowy of a book to publish uh, or, or to write about when uh, you know the world's basically on fire and <laughs> so this is me taking matters into my own hands so what I decided to do is not only am I going to read from Dark Black I'm going to read a very particular story to you from Dark Black from the ARC that Sam sent me and signed for me but I'm also going to talk about it in the afterword, talk a little bit about what I think this book is in terms of Sam's career and his relationship to Ray uh, and where, it, where he stands now. So in the meantime, let me turn you over to the reading. The story I selected, there are 20 stories in total in Dark Black, including The Girl in the Funeral Parlor that I mentioned that was originally published in Shadow Show, but there are 19 others some of which are original to the book, some of which were published elsewhere in other periodicals. The one I'm going to read to you tonight is what I think of as the ultimate tribute story to Ray. It's a short story called Live Forever. 
the title taken from one of Ray's most famous maxims, you know, live forever. It is the, should be the aim of every writer and every creative person to live forever through their creative work. And so here it is. I'm not going to tell you anything about it, but I will say that it is a beautiful tribute and it's uh, to Ray and it's probably, you know, it's, it's a perfect example of how you can take an ordinary mundane situation from your life, an autobiographical springboard, a, a detail, and use it as a jumping off point for fantastic fiction. So here it is, a wonderful short story from Dark Black, Live Forever by Sam Weller. took a deep breath, dusted his lapels, adjusted his tie, and rang the doorbell. William Joy was standing on the front steps of Ray Bradbury's house. Ray Bradbury, famous author of Fahrenheit 451, The Martian Chronicles, Something Wicked This Way Comes. Some people have said William looked like a young Ray Bradbury with his crew cut and black horn rimmed glasses. The house was painted a sunny dandelion yellow and was tucked into a sloping green parcel in the old Los Angeles neighborhood of Cheviot Hills. Eucalyptus and palm trees and leafy shrubs rustled in the warm California breeze, creating a rush of sound that resonated like a conch shell held to the ear. William looked down at his feet. The doormat had three ghosts printed on it with the word boo above them. The front door slowly creaked open, and an attractive, well-dressed woman with a 1940s-style hairdo answered, May I help you? William was startled for a moment, for the woman looked remarkably similar to pictures he had seen of Ray Bradbury's late wife, Maggie, when she was a young woman. William looked down and saw that the woman was holding a feather duster and concluded she was most likely the housekeeper. Hello, William said, clearing his throat. I'm here for a one o'clock interview with Mr. Bradbury. He could hardly believe he had just said those words. William had worshipped Ray Bradbury for so long. Ray Bradbury was the reason he had become a writer, and here he was, a staff reporter for the St. Louis Post-Journal, writing a story on the renowned Midwestern-born author. At 33 years old, William had written hundreds of stories, interviewed movie stars, rock stars, musicians, artists, politicians. But this, he had to admit, this was a dream come true. Won't you come in, the housekeeper said, smiling and beckoning with her hand. He is expecting you. William stepped into the foyer. Hanging on the wall was a large painting of the famous Bradbury character, the illustrated man. It was an original from an old book cover. William knew it well. He had carried the paperback with that very cover on it when he was a teenager. It was frayed from being touted around during the day in the back pocket of well-worn blue jeans and read under the warmth of bed covers long after midnight. "'Good afternoon,' a voice bellowed, breaking William's trance. 
He knew that voice. He wheeled around and looked down three steps. Standing in the spacious living room was the man known as the world's greatest living science fiction writer, Ray Douglas Bradbury. He was dressed in snow-white tennis shoes, white socks pulled high up his calves, white tennis shorts, and a crisp, freshly starched blue Oxford underneath a white windbreaker. He was wearing a tie embosled with colorful Easter eggs loosely around his neck. Come in, come in, he said, motioning William into the living room. The young writer stepped forward and shook Bradbury's thick, surprisingly strong hand. Hello, Mr. Bradbury. I can't tell you what a great honor this is. I'm sure you hear it all the time, but I grew up reading your books. William was speaking rather quickly, even to his own ears. Tell me more, tell me more. I like you already, Ray Bradbury said, smiling. William sat down on a small floral print sofa. He nervously dug out his pad, pen, and tape recorder from his bag. He wanted to compose himself, think of something clever to say. Two cats darted about the room, moving swiftly underneath end tables and behind furniture. Sunlight poured in through the open white plantation shutters. The time traveler, after a hundred years of silence, had agreed to be interviewed. He was on this day 130 years old, and this afternoon at four o'clock sharp Pacific time was the anniversary of his one and only journey in time, quoted William. You're amazing, Ray Bradbury said, beaming. The Toynbee Convector, it's one of my personal favorites. I've read all your work, Mr. Bradbury, said William. All your novels, plays, screenplays, poetry, essays, and the more than 600 short stories. As you can see, I'm a great admirer, and you have had a profound influence on me. Thank you. I'm curious. Who are some of the people who influenced you? William asked. Ray Bradbury crossed the living room. At 86, he moved with energy and much grace. He went to a bookcase and picked up a framed picture and handed it to William. It was an original animation cell from the Walt Disney film Snow White. I met Walt Disney by sheer happenstance, said Ray Bradbury. A random encounter in Beverly Hills department store. It was Christmas, 1964. From that point forward until Disney's death just two years later, Ray Bradbury said they forged a fast friendship based on their mutual love of world's fairs and cartoons and architecture and the mysterious and glorious nature of creativity itself. As William Joy listened to Ray Bradbury recount the friendship, he marveled at this singular relationship. Disney and Bradbury, two idea men, two visionaries. The sun outside lowered toward the horizon, sinking out there somewhere over the shimmering Pacific three miles from the Bradbury home. The housekeeper entered the living room, offering them a glass of red wine. She turned on the old green banker's lamps as dusk settled outside. William looked at Ray Bradbury, sitting in a chair, sipping his wine. He began recounting his ill-fated relationship with film director John Huston. 
He spent six trying months in late 1953 and early 1954 holed up in a Dublin, Ireland hotel writing the screenplay for the Houston adaptation of the Melville classic Moby Dick. As late autumn rain turned into early winter snow falling all across Ireland, it was a trying time for Bradbury. Houston was a complex, difficult man, and the Melville tome was a difficult, complex book to adapt. But he did it. He finished the screenplay and was darn proud of the end product. Work is the only answer, said Ray Bradbury. If you're having a bad day, even if you accomplish just a little bit, you feel better about yourself. Bradbury still wrote every day. He was full of philosophies and ideas and an abiding hunger to create. As Bradbury spoke of his working relationships with Houston and Disney, he brought up other friendships, and William just watched and thought that this man was a walking encyclopedia of 20th century pop culture. He was a time machine. He had been close with the great Italian filmmaker Federico Fellini. He had worked for Alfred Hitchcock. Once, in 1992, he had even been the special guest at a dinner with the former president of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev. Ray Bradbury had lived an incredible life, and as William sat there in the living room, twirling his wine in his glass and staring at it as it went around and around, he was already struggling in his mind at the complexity of the feature story he would write. Bradbury had truly lived the life fantastic. How would William get it all into a 3,000-word feature for his newspaper? You mustn't overthink when you write, Bradbury said, perceiving William's anxiety. The faster you blurt, the more swiftly you write, the more honest you are. I always tell writers that a first draft must come quickly, and only with the rewrites can you begin intellectualizing your work. Bradbury took a sip of his wine and then chortled. More succinctly, just throw up in the morning and clean it up in the afternoon. They both laughed. They had hit it off so well. Part of the connection was that they were both Midwesterners. They had explored prairie creeks and ravines and fields when they were boys, a bit separated by nearly half a century. When they talked architecture, they found that they had the same favorites. The Chrysler Building is the greatest building of the 20th century, Bradbury declared. They talked about painters, film directors, writers, restaurants, jazz artists, science, religion, and politics. But most of all, they talked Bradbury. As nighttime fully settled outside, William still couldn't quite believe he was sitting with this great icon of Americana. It didn't seem real. Bradbury didn't seem real. He seemed more like a character out of history, truly. When this man was a little boy, he watched Civil War veterans march in parade downtown, the main street of his boyhood town. When he grew up and became synonymous with science fiction, he traveled to the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas, to interview the Apollo astronauts for Life magazine. From the veterans of Sherman's March to the sea to the veterans of the Sea of Tranquility, Ray Bradbury had witnessed a miraculous period in world history. Undoubtedly, 
the greatest period of technological advancement in the history of mankind. Why have you written so often about space travel? Liam asked. Space is the only answer. If we stay on this little blue planet, we're all doomed. The sun will eventually burn out, but going out into space will ensure that the human race will live forever. The interview continued. They finished the bottle of wine. Can you return tomorrow? Ray Bradbury asked. I'm enjoying this, and there's so much I haven't told you. William was dumbfounded. Bradbury actually wanted him to come back for further interviews? Of course, Mr. Bradbury. I would be honored. William returned to the sprawling dandelion yellow house as instructed the next morning and climbed the stairs and rang the bell and was ushered in by the maid. He'll be right with you, she said, leaving William alone in the living room. William looked at the hundreds of books that lined the built-in bookshelves. He looked at all the awards and medals and various trophies Bradbury had amassed over the decades. Then he spotted a small framed black and white photograph and picked it up. It was a withered picture of a young Ray Bradbury and Marguerite McClure taken during their courtship. William knew this as Ray Bradbury had written 1946 at the top of the photograph. It was one year before their marriage. In the picture, the couple were cheek to cheek, obviously in the throes of love. William stared at it for a long while, looking closer and closer at the future Maggie Bradbury. Brunette hair, a round supple face, the shade of soft moonlight full lips adorned by a deep shade of lipstick. It was uncanny. William couldn't get over it. Then he heard someone behind him and turned around. The maid was standing there, looking at William. I look like her, don't I? she asked. It's remarkable, William replied. And it was. The maid was an identical match to the woman in the old photograph. And then... Reliable as an old Timex, Ray Bradbury rounded a corner and stepped down into the living room. "'Good morning!' he exclaimed as the maid wandered off to another room in the house. Again, the two men spent the better part of the day sitting and talking. Bradbury told of his fateful encounter with the enigmatic carnival worker named Mr. Electrico. It was Labor Day weekend, 1932. A dingy and dusty carnival had arrived and pitched tents along the rocky shoreline of Lake Michigan in Ray Bradbury's boyhood town of Waukegan, Illinois. It was a gray, gauzy day. A light rain was falling. Twelve-year-old, bespectacled, tow-headed Ray was in love with carnivals and circuses and sideshow freaks. On that day, he wandered into a tattered magician's tent and took a seat alongside a dozen other children on a sawdust-covered floor. The lights dimmed. Mr. Electrico emerged from behind a curtain wearing a black cape. He was wielding a heavy Excalibur sword. The mysterious magician, with his great shock of white hair, took a seat in an electric chair, and an assistant strapped him in. Then, at a nod, the assistant pulled a lever from stage left, sending 50,000 volts of pure, unfettered electricity coursing through the magician. Mr. Electrico's teeth chattered, his eyes glowed, his hair stood on end. Then the assistant pushed the lever back in place, 
and the thunder and lightning show ended as quickly as it began. The assistant unstrapped the magician, and Mr. Electrico picked up his sword and slowly walked up to all the children sitting before him. One by one, he began tapping his sword on their brows as their hair stood up on end, electricity charging from the magician through the sword and into the kids. The members in the audience were incredulous. Then finally, Mr. Electrico approached one last child, Ray Bradbury. He tapped the sword on the boy's left shoulder, then on his right, then gently touched the tip of the sword to young Ray Bradbury's nose. The twelve-year-old could feel electricity triggering through every cell in his body, and the magician and child locked eyes. Live forever, Mr. Electrico cried. William sat and watched and listened, and took close notes as the elderly writer excitedly conjured his younger self. William found the carnival tale both mesmerizing and metaphoric. Why did he say that to me? Why? He didn't say that to any of the other children. Two weeks after the incident, Ray Bradbury began writing short stories, and he never stopped. Predominant throughout the writing of Ray Bradbury was the theme of life and death, mortality and immortality, and the quest to live forever. And Ray Bradbury looked at art and creativity and writing as the one way to achieve this. Before they knew it, the day was winding down and darkness was closing in over Los Angeles once again. This has been an amazing conversation. Come back every week, Bradbury said. I wish I could, William said. Well, Bradbury said finally, we've talked and talked. I still haven't shown you my basement office. Do you want to take a quick look around? Ray Bradbury's basement office was storied. Fans across the globe knew about it from photos and magazines. It was the stuff of legend. It was a laboratory of the imagination. From photos William had seen of it over the years and from television interviews taped there, the basement office was a wonderland of metaphors from Ray Bradbury's life. To the casual observer, it may have been mistaken for a junkyard, but to a Bradbury fan, it was a museum of magic and imagination. By the kitchen, Ray Bradbury opened the door and ushered William down the short flight of stairs. The office was packed to the rafters, floor to ceiling, with trinkets and mementos from Bradbury's life. There were hundreds of copies of his own books lining shelves, rare editions, foreign editions, and first editions. There was his first collection, Dark Carnival, published in the spring of 1947. The basement office was also a veritable toy store. Old tin rocket ships and wind-up robots waited to spring to mechanize life. Rubber dinosaurs lined shelves. There were action figures and stuffed animals and hundreds of homemade gifts from fans over the decades. A painting of the Martian landscape here, a sculpture of a famous movie monster there, a handmade circus poster for Cougar and Dark's Pandemonium's shadow show there. William Joy was in heaven. There were old framed black and white photos of Ray Bradbury as a boy. 
Hanging on a wooden rafter above the desk was Ray's father's old dusty Stetson, a hat that had traveled across Depression-era America more than once. William spotted old autographs from golden-era Hollywood screen legends, comic books, and piles and piles of manila folders stacked high, each containing letters or press clippings. It was an amazing amusement park for a Ray Bradbury diehard. The desk itself was piled high with old papers and letters and an IBM Selectric typewriter, the man who brought great fictional explorers out into the deeps of space did not own a computer. In a corner of the office was a row of metal filing cabinets. William walked towards them and looked at the labels fixed in the middle of each drawer. Novels in progress, short stories in progress, screenplays in progress. William grew excited. How much unreleased Bradbury was there? He turned and looked at Ray Bradbury, who was staring at him. You like this place, he declared? It's incredible. Bradbury looked down at the floor and was silent for a moment and said, I've never told anyone this, not even my beloved wife of 56 years, God bless her soul, but I'd like to show you something. You must keep it secret. Of course, William said. What was he alluding to? These last two days you have been here have been magical, he said. I have enjoyed our talks. So have I. I feel a connection to you, and that is why I would like you to meet some of my friends. Would you like to meet them? Of course. Now William's curiosity was piqued. Good, then follow me. Ray Bradbury walked slowly over to another door and opened it. It led down to a sub-basement, a level below them. Come with me. Ray Bradbury began to descend the stairs, and William followed. At the bottom of the steps, Bradbury turned on a light, and everything lit up. William couldn't believe his eyes. Along with more books, and more toys, and more piles of papers and manuscripts and photos, was something he just couldn't fathom. He closed his eyes and opened them again. It couldn't be, but it was. Sitting in chairs were Walt Disney, George Burns, Alfred Hitchcock, an elderly aristocratic man, more likely Renaissance scholar, Bernard Brereson. And in a corner, slumped in a chair, sound asleep, was film director John Huston himself. Oh. My. God. William said. Are they all my friends, my mentors, said Ray, living and in the fresh? You mean, they're real? Welcome, said Walter Elias Disney, standing up and moving across the room to greet William. He was in his early sixties, the Uncle Walt America knew and loved. He was dressed in a finely tailored vintage wool suit with a pencil-thin tie. Good evening, said Hitchcock. How you doing, kid? said a youthful George Burns, puffing on a cigar. He was probably forty. They rose and moved across the small room to shake William's hand, all of them, that is, except Houston, who remained in his chair, leaning gently to one side, eyes closed, his chin resting on his chest. All the men were the exact age they had been when Ray Bradbury had worked with them. 
Bradbury looked at William with excitement, his eyes electric. What's with John Houston, he said, motioning to the sleeping director. Don't mind him, kid, said Burns. We turned him off. He was annoying us. Turned him off? William asked. And then he understood. Walt Disney was standing closest to him, smelling of a gentle, expensive cologne. William heard something faint, something odd, a whirring of motors, a spinning of metal cogs and wheels. There was an almost imperceptible mechanized symphony inside of Walt Disney. Of course, animatrons. William had seen them many times before at Disneyland and Disney World and Epcot Center, the mechanized Abraham Lincoln and the robotic pirates of the Caribbean. They're astounding, he said, looking at Ray Bradbury, who was beaming with pride. They were built from the ground up by my genius friends at Disney Imagineering, he said, like a proud papa. Every cogwheel, every cam, every capstan, a gyroscope here, a gizmo there, all brought to glorious life by thousands of volts of primordial electricity. A hundred summer heat lightning storms captured inside each of them. They will outlive both of us. As long as they are maintained, they will live forever. The animatrons stared at William. It was both amazing and unsettling. A little shiver went up William's spine. He poked gently into George Burns. He felt real enough. Watch who you're poking, kid, George Burns said, taking another puff of his cigar. William stayed in the basement for a good two or three hours, talking to them all. Brarison dotted around the small basement, speaking of the art of properly visiting a museum. Disney discussed his dreams for Epcot as a laboratory to experiment on global issues such as urban congestion, space exploration, and environmentalism. It was almost as good as talking to the real McCoys, but as the hour neared midnight, it was time for William to leave. It's getting late, said Ray Bradbury. I have a busy day tomorrow. The animatron shook William's hand and said good night, and then they returned to the chairs they had been sitting in when he arrived. William climbed the stairs and Ray Bradbury followed, turning off the lights and closing the basement door behind them. Well, he said, I suppose it's back to the Midwest for you tomorrow. I have an amazing story to write, but of course, William added, what you have just shown me will remain a secret. Ray Bradbury ushered William to the front door. The venerable author was quiet for a moment and said, You are my bastard son, you know that? We're joint at the hip, you and I. Oh, Mr. Bradbury, to hear you say that, it's such an honor. I can't thank you enough. This has been a dream, an incredible experience. Ray Bradbury opened the door and William looked out at the dark Los Angeles night. He could hear the sound of crickets and the faint rush of traffic from the Santa Monica freeway. He turned to hug Ray Bradbury and say goodbye, but William put his arms around Ray Bradbury. He heard it. It couldn't be, yet it was. Good God, 
the faint symphony, the symphony of machinery, all the cogs and whirring of little motors inside of him. Ray Bradbury was not real. William stepped back, dazed and bewildered. What's wrong? asked Bradbury. Nothing, said William, collecting himself. He took a deep breath. Again, I can't thank you enough. No, thank you. William walked down the steps in complete and total confusion. William Joy went back to his hotel room near Los Angeles International Airport and spent the majority of the night tossing and turning, unable to sleep. He paced the room, staring blankly out the floor-to-ceiling windows at the starkly illuminated airport and all the incoming jumbo jets arriving with precision throughout the night. By the time the black of night turned pre-dawn cobalt, William was still trying to get his mind wrapped around what had happened at the Bradbury house the day before. His return flight to St. Louis was scheduled for the late morning. He packed his bag, dressed, and as the sun rose, he decided to drive his rental car over to Cheviot Hills for a lot, one last visit with Ray Bradbury. That is, with Ray Bradbury's robot. William had to know what it was all about. He climbed the stairs for the third time in as many days and rang the bell, and the maid answered with a smile and ushered him in. Bradbury was sitting in the living room with a pen in his hand, writing on a pad of paper. How wonderful, he bellowed, looking up. You returned. The maid left, and William stepped into the living room and took a seat. Mr. Bradbury, William said, the friends you introduced me to yesterday, the animatrons. Yes, he said, aren't they incredible? I'm never lonely now. William paused inhaled, struggled for words. Sir, when you are standing near them, you can hear the motors inside them. You can hear all the mechanized parts moving. Yes, they are complex machines made of a million and one minuscule components. Sir, said William nervously, when I stand next to you, I, I hear the same noise. I hear the million and one components whirring away. Ray Bradbury stared at William through his thick, black-rimmed glasses. What are you saying, he said at last. Sir, where is the real Ray Bradbury? Ray Bradbury was silent for a long, uncomfortable moment with a look of bewilderment on his face. He glanced blankly at the floor, listening, listening, listening. Well, I'll be damned, he said. What? William asked. I hear it. The million and one components. All the cogs and the wheels. I guess I've never noticed it before. I thought that was just normal. And you're saying it's not? No. No, it's not. It took all of William's courage to ask, Sir, where is the real Ray Bradbury? Did he build you? Is he still alive? The electric Bradbury was bewildered, lost, confused, silent for a long moment, and then his eyes glassed over, and a tear started to run down the side of his nose and across his cheek. 
the old machine was still, thoughtful, processing. If what you say is true, that I am machine, perhaps built by your literary Geppetto, then who knows? Ray Bradbury could be anywhere. I just don't know. The Ray Bradbury machine stood up and moved to the center of the living room. With the know-how to build a machine like this, your Ray Bradbury could do anything. He could build a time machine. He might hopscotch the space-time continuum, leapfrog from 19th Dynasty Ramses Egypt to Jurassic Jungle and back to Greentown, Illinois, 1928, and still make it for a Swedish meatball dinner prepared steaming hot and with loving care by none other than his mother, Esther. Marie Moberg Bradbury. Afterward, he could transport to Antietam to sniff the first salvo of acrid gunpowder drifting off on sad Maryland winds. Here he is, walking the rain-slicked Avenue de l'Opera during the Jazz Age. Next, he's off to Far Schenectady with a stop off in Dublin at Heverfin's Pub for a pint of Guinness with the Boyos circa winter 1954. Or perhaps the answer is more obvious. Perhaps he is on Mars. William looked at the robot and instantly regretted coming back to the house the third time. He could have left things as they were. He should never have told the machine that he was, in fact, just a machine. Because he was more than that, he was fantastic. He crackled with enthusiasm and energy and life. Now, the machine stood there, with his eyes glazed with tears and a look of defeated confusion on his face. I'm sorry, William said. I'm sorry. It's okay, Ray Bradbury said at last. Foolish me for not noticing it until now. I guess you live with something for so long you just don't notice it. And then he laughed. Funny thing, I'm not alive at all, am I? Yes, you are, William said. More than anyone I know. And with that... William turned and said goodbye again for the last time. He walked to the front door and closed it behind himself and stood in the cool Los Angeles night and closed his eyes and took a deep breath and he listened and then he heard it inside himself, all the cogs and the whirring of motors. There's a book, I'm not entirely sure how many people these days have read it, but it's a book titled The Life of Johnson, and it was written by a guy called James Boswell. Now, for those of you who don't know who James Boswell is or who the Johnson in question is, 
and no I'm not just saying that name because it's the word Johnson and <laughs> there's a lot of interesting connotations to go with it <clears throat> uh, the Johnson in question was uh, Samuel Johnson who some of you may know as the author of not the first dictionary but probably one of the most noteworthy dictionaries in the English language and he also uh, wrote a piece of work a novel called Rasselas sort of an early comic novel in uh, English literature and uh, Johnson was notable for a number of things aside from his accomplishments for, for composing a dictionary and for Rasselas and for other literary achievements that he managed to uh, acquire along the way but he's noteworthy because of his wit and his wit was only fully on display when he was in the company of friends and one of those friends was James Boswell and Boswell kept this copious diary uh, in which he deposited pretty much all of Johnson's most um, occasionally quoted witticisms probably the best known one being he who is tired of London is tired of life or, um, you know, describing a, a piece of written work as it stinks of the lamp, meaning that you, or smells of the lamp, which means that you stayed up late working on that, and it shows. Um, the only reason we know who James Boswell is is because he wrote Life of, Life of Johnson, extracting all the stories that Johnson had told him across, you know, the, the, the bar table, the pub room or the coffee table and the dinner table and, and compiling this this early literary biography um, but aside from that we, we don't really remember Boswell uh, all that well and to a certain extent that is what could have happened to Sam Weller he could have always just been known as Ray Bradbury's authorized biographer he could have always been known as the guy who worked very carefully to ensure or sure up Ray Bradbury's legacy by writing these biographies of him, by releasing these nonfiction books about him, so that way more people could get a better look at the man behind the name on the book cover. <clears throat> but with Dark Black, in effect, what Sam is doing is he's paying one last homage to his master, to his master Yoda, <laughs> and he's, yes, let's, let's, let's just go with that metaphor, he's paying one last homage to Master Yoda and setting out to become a Jedi master of his own. <laughs> Apropos, considering Brad, Bradbury is considered a science fiction writer, even though he's not, um, <clears throat> or not just a science fiction writer, but that's what Dark Black is. It is the final thank you to Ray, and it is the his declaration of his own independence, saying to the world, "Here I am. This is me." Because while there are, while there's shades of Bradbury in here, and Sam's not averse to admitting that. I've heard in a couple of interviews that he's done um, over the years, and it's you know it's in the copy that he's got in this book. Um, hopefully that hasn't changed yet since it's been published, but that what he wanted to do was to carry on a certain a certain kind of writing that Bradbury had 
you know, had become noted for, but not nearly as noted as he had been for his science fiction accomplishments. Um, one of the books that Bradbury is most famous for is a book called The October Country. It's a collection of short stories, and it is, in fact, as Sam himself points out, in a piece he did for the Paris Review, it's really sort of the reincarnation of Ray's very first book of published stories called Dark Carnival. Um, A very Bradbury-esque image evoked by those two words, Dark Carnival. Bradbury had published that book. It was it was a limited edition Arkham House, I think, hardcover. And I think there's like three or four hundred of them in existence or something like that right now um, that are still in existence to this day. Uh, and the thing about short story writers and poets and, you know, people who write short pieces in general um, is that their latest collection is sort of... And, you know, this is also true of musicians and albums and, 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 and you know, artists, visual artists, you know, their, their latest gallery show. What it does is it shows the world where they are and who they are at that moment. <clears throat> and Ray, at one point, thought that Dark Carnival, after it had been out for a couple of years, and after he'd written several more books, including The Martian Chronicles and The Illustrated Man and, uh, obviously, Fahrenheit... And I think um, Golden Apples was, was somewhere in there. He, he needed, he went back and he revisited Dark Carnival, the manuscript that he had published with Arkham House. And he thought, this is not representative of where I am as an artist anymore. And so what he did is he kept the stories, some of the stories, I think 10 of them, 10, 15, something like that. The exact number is, a, is, is, is in Sam's biography of Ray. Um, <clears throat> He, he threw out a, a huge chunk of them and, and added in a whole bunch of new stories that had been more recently written and more recently published and polished uh, some of the old stories and republished the book as The October Country. And it's that aesthetic, this sort of aesthetic of dark fantasy of what I think Sam, the phrase that he uses is Midwestern Gothic. Um, he wanted to use that aesthetic, that landscape, that tone, uh, and to and to keep that particular kind of, of writing going, and, which is what he reaches for in Dark Black. And more often than not, he, he manages to touch it and to make contact with it. Now, that being said, Sam is also not averse to doing kind of crazy things in his own short stories. For the most part, in Ray's fiction... I don't think you can find a single short story of Ray's that you could call overtly experimental in a stylistic manner. Um, Ray was a teller of tales. He was a storyteller. He wanted to tell stories, which meant that he was, you know, he was going to keep his plots and his structure of his stories as, in a way, simple as he possibly could, which gave him liberty to do other things. And the liberty he often took was to do things stylistically that were interesting. You know, that, that poetic prose that he inherited from Thomas Wolfe and, and um, uh, you know, uh, other writer. There's of that ilk from all the poetry from Shakespeare, uh, from Herman Melville, all that stuff that he'd been reading all those years, Edgar Allan Poe. 
he was able to bring that kind of language into science fiction and to fantasy and to speculative fiction in, in general. But he tended to keep his stories fairly straightforward. And, and not overly typographically odd. Well, Sam is not above doing that. And it shows the difference uh, between him and Ray right, off, right on the page, quite literally. In one of the early stories in this collection called Little Spells, which is uh, one of my favorites. I could have read you this one, but it, it's, a, it's a little bit... It, the way Sam wrote it makes it a little bit complicated to read. What he does... He's not only playing with um, with literary knowledge. You know, if you know who, for example, if you know the Clutters, you, if you know um, anything about um, the murder story that Truman Capote used, the, the, the case of manslaughter that Truman Capote used as the basis for In Cold Blood, uh, the, the, for one of the earliest true crime novels, um, You'll, you'll get some of the references in this book, but then Sam has this wonderful little masterstroke of adding in footnotes, so that way the story reads almost like something from Terry Pratchett, <laughs> or, or um, you know, David Foster Wallace, you know, you've, you've come across these pages, and you find um, an asterisk that brings you down to a footnote, and all of a sudden you've got this funny little weird aside at the bottom of the page that adds, you know, sometimes they're weird, sometimes they're a tad esoteric, sometimes they're a little bit creepy, um, but, you know, the, this, the effects vary, and that's what Sam was trying to do. Um, there's another story in here, if I can figure out which one it was, that reads almost like a transcript, an interview, uh, done, where, where it's just basically all dialogue that reads like a transcript from a, from a very long interview, um, or an interrogation. Again, I'm trying to remember which one it was. Oh, shoot. Ah, here we go. Yes. Uh, Bose. Bose. I think that's how you pronounce that. B-O-S-E with the umlaut over the O. Bose, maybe? Anyway, <laughs> pardon my pronunciation, Sam, if you're listening to this. I do apologize. But it's it reads like an interrogation, or it reads like an interview in a magazine, where you've got, it's obviously two people speaking, you know, is it okay if I record this, of course, thank you for documentation, can you please state your name, title, and years of employment at the hospital. My name is Michaela Walker. I'm a nurse practitioner in the oncology unit at St. Mary's Hospital in Rockford, Illinois. I've worked at the hospital for 11 years. You know, it, it reads like an interview. Somebody's getting grilled. Something bad's going on, and you have to figure out what's going on. <laughs> but it's, it, it's really, really fun. I mean, that's the other great thing about Dark Black, is that it, it shows just how versatile the short story form can be. I mean, you've got experimental footnote you know, story. He's like, um, like, like the first story in here, like Little Spells. And you've got Bose, which is basically an interview, a story in the format of an interview. And then you've got uh, another story, 11 Messages from Beyond 
to the producers of Ghost Investigators on A&E. <laughs> uh, it just shows you what kind of fun. They, and Eleven Messenger, first of all, that title just kind of makes me giggle. <laughs> but second of all, it's just, again, it's just these little paragraphs, these little aphorisms. I could have read you this one, um, too. It, it's just so wonderful. That show you how versatile the short story form can be, how supple it is, how it can be all these different kinds of things. A short story doesn't necessarily have to be just one thing. It doesn't have to be, don't necessarily have to start at the beginning and, you know, set the scene and move forward. You can just sort of throw something onto the page and let your readers figure it out because, of course, that's a wonderful hallmark of a writer who is confident in their craft is the fact that they're willing to write a story that forces the reader to be an active participant in the reading process is that they're not going to they're going to give you just enough just enough just you know they're going to beg just the right question from you to keep you reading they're going to beg just the right question for you and they're going to make you and then they're going to answer that question and then they're going to give you a, a, evoke another question so that way you ask you know you want another answer and they're going to pull you through they're going to sucker you through <laughs> this marvelous literary sleight of hand you know and, and make you feel as if you know you're intelligent by the end of it for having gotten through this story and it's just it's a marvel what sam has done here it's it, he is like I said, I mean, with Live Forever, he is paying one final homage to Ray, to the man who undoubtedly was a huge literary influence on him, who was a significant figure in his life, and who will, I have no doubt, will always be important to him. But at the same time, he's also declaring his own identity. He's stamping his own identity into American letters with this collection. He's saying, here I am, this is me, you know, if you don't like it, <laughs> tough. <laughs> and if you do like it, stick around for the ride, because there's more to come. And it's, it's so glorious to be able to see a writer who could have so easily have been overshadowed by this other figure, by this looming literary figure, um, who has a far more defined and more readily, um, more, more readily identifiable outline and personality and an established force. It's so, it could have been so easy that, that he, that he, Sam could have very easily been like a star in the daylight. You know, when out in the daylight, you have the sun, and you know the stars are there, but you can't see them because they're blotted out. The light seems almost minuscule compared to the light of the sun. But then at night, you can see them. Um, and, and Ray, in many ways, Ray Bradbury was the sun for him. And he was just another star who could have easily been overwhelmed and outshined by this much brighter star. But in this case, he's he's claiming his own light. He's claiming his own place in the sky. And it does not 
it, it, it does not surprise me, A, that you can see shades of Ray in his work, but at the same time, you can see a lot more of Sam in this, because he is, he's bringing it out, he's bringing himself, he's putting his own, the stuff he loves, the things, he, you know, all the stuff, he's taking everything that Ray ever taught him about writing, all those philosophies, and using his own material, and putting it out there. For others to enjoy and maybe just maybe you know sam weller will end up going on to influence all kinds of writers in the future who knows we never know we th that's the thing about art is that you put stuff into the world and you hope that it finds an audience and if it does wonderful if it doesn't well maybe it won't find an audience now but maybe it'll find an audience later and I, but I think Sam is going to find an audience very, very quickly, especially with a book as good as this. I think I'll close out by reading you one final thing. This is called, this is one of the very short, short stories in here, called All the Summer Before Us. Sort of, in, in many ways, it's, it's one of those pieces that, again, dips into Bradbury's inkwell, but Sam is using it to create something of his own. So here we go. Back in those days, we could still make out the stars and the night sky, all the pinpoints of light, along with the constellations, Orion, Cassiopeia, Ursa Major, and Minor. We were surrounded on all sides by cornfields rustling in the early summer air. Those night green fields went on and on. At least it seemed that way. There was a remarkable lack of ambient light back then in this stretch of western Illinois. This was before the incessant creep of asphalt and K-League lights and big box stores, before the rural acquiesced to suburban crawl. We were eighteen, me, Dave, and Bill, childhood friends on the cusp of adulthood. On a silent country road we had discovered an old concrete pipe factory out amidst the darkness and the corn stalks that would in weeks be knee-high by the 4th of July. We parked our car in a subdivision about a mile away from the factory. This was the first subdivision of many that would soon arrive, a harbinger of the development to come, a real estate malignancy bearing such ironic monikers as Cedar Ridge and Willow Creek. We were in Dave's nocturnal blue Chevy, with scrunched up fast food bags on the floor and heavy metal looping from the glowing stereo. Dave killed the headlights. We rolled up the windows and stepped from the car. It was a Midwest summer night. Crickets in the field, a June night chorus. A firefly rose from the ground, drifting spirit light. A freight train off somewhere in the distance passed. As we walked, the concrete factory loomed, a shadowy industrial acropolis with a rising sheet metal tower and a connecting run-down warehouse. An old chain-link fence surrounded the place. We found an opening and sneaked in. Hundreds of concrete pipes of various sizes were stacked up like toys in the vast gravel yard. There were drainage pipes, many of them large enough to stand in. What called us to this place, we did not know. But we were drawn to it nonetheless. We wandered around the gravel lot, through the labyrinthine corridors of stacked concrete pipes. Everything about the factory building was covered in rust. 
The tower, some sort of silo, we assumed, for mixing cement, had a rusted ladder attached, and we decided to climb. The ladder felt precarious, going up at least four stories, yet undaunted, and for no apparent reason we continued to ascend. As we got higher and higher, the view was magnificent. We reached the roof of the tower and looked out at the dark cornfields rustling in tremendous sheets in the summer night. Far off, we could see the lights of Sterling Springs. We stepped upon the roof of the old factory. We talked three young men who were really three boys. We lay down on the roof and stared up at the stars, and we pondered where our lives would take us. What we didn't realize then is that none of that really mattered. What mattered then was that moment and our friendship and the very fact that all the world was out before us. Sam Weller, Dark Black. Get it now, out in bookstores. Hey, funny people. That's it from me here on Four Cents a Podcast. I really do hope you enjoyed the show and that you'll join me here again next time. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and do try to remember to enjoy yourselves.